Hello and welcome to our broadcast today. I'm your host, Lori Kelly, the Chief Philanthropy Officer and Senior Vice President at Providence. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only. It is not intended, nor, does it, nor is it implied to be a substitute for, for professional medical advice. If you have any questions regarding medical conditions or treatment plans, please consult your physician. Now let's begin. So today we have with us our esteemed colleague and um, my friend, uh, Dr. George Diaz. He is the section chief infectious diseases and he's the medical director for antimicrobial stewardship and infection prevention at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett. He also works for Providence as a system provider informaticist, which focuses on improving the infectious disease care of patients by improving the, uh, the electronic medical record. So welcome today, Dr. Diaz. It's great to see you again. I'm sorry under these circumstances to talk more about COVID. Um, we thought we'd be on the end of this, but tell us a little bit about what you do. What's your, you have many roles within Providence, but, but tell, us, tell us a little bit more about that, what your job is. Yeah, so uh, firstly, I'm an infectious disease doctor. So I see patients uh, just in the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, recently, obviously, because of this recent surge, there's been a lot of people with COVID that I've been seeing um, in the hospital. Um, as you mentioned, I direct our sewer antibiotic stewardship program and infection prevention programs here in Everett, uh, work on informatics. Um, I also teach uh, medical students and residents. We have a residency here in internal mm -hmm. medicine in Everett uh, and a medical school that we're affiliated with, uh, which is Washington State University. So I spend time teaching them uh, both on the wards and also uh, in the classroom. Um, and then over the past, uh, since our first patient arrived in 2020, I've been um, uh, leading our uh, clinical trials um, program here uh, in Everett for COVID. Um, and uh, also we've been doing clinical research uh, recently on looking at uh, vaccine effectiveness uh, and side effects um, with our health system. That's fantastic. Yeah, so so you were one of the first doctors in the country actually to treat a COVID patient, isn't that correct? Yeah, it, here in Everett, we, were the, uh, we had the very first patient in the U.S., uh, with COVID, um, and uh, we uh, provided that first patient with a drug called remdesivir. He was the first patient in the world to receive this treatment, uh, and shortly thereafter, our health system became very active in clinical research uh, and had been involved in a number of clinical trials. Uh, here in Everett, just uh, as an example, we were involved in the studies for remdesivir. It's mm -hmm. now an FDA-approved treatment for COVID. Uh, we are involved in studies with tocilizumab, which is also now uh, authorized by the FDA for the uh, treatment of COVID. And then we were also involved in the monoclonal antibodies uh, with Regeneron, uh, which are now being widely used to uh, treat patients um, with COVID who are uh, not ill enough to be in the hospital, as well as those who are uh, exposed uh, to prophylaxis against getting infected. So uh, we've been very active locally in COVID research as well. Yeah. Yeah. And as a reminder to folks watching, you may not realize that Providence is a huge system. We're across seven states. We have 52 hospitals, 120,000 uh, care providers. And so we're really uh, we're able to to treat a lot of people and and use the data, as he was talking about, um, to really to really suss out some really good findings. And so can you um, kind of remind everybody what it means? What is a clinical trial? What does that mean to be in a clinical yeah, trial? A clinical trial is a way that we figure out whether or not a treatment works. 
Uh, generally, these are placebo-controlled studies, which means we're comparing uh, a study medication to a placebo uh, to see if there's a difference in the outcomes between getting a study drug and getting a placebo. And in this way, we can prove that the treatment works. Uh, and then uh, once we prove that, then all patients you know, around the world can use these treatments uh, for COVID or any other uh, clinical condition that's being studied. Uh, clinical trials are the way that we move forward in terms of the treatment of COVID. Uh, and thanks to the many uh, volunteers um, across our country, uh, we've made important discoveries in terms of reducing the, the chances of dying uh, from COVID in the U.S. Uh, and so these clinical trials and clinical research is very important to help mm -hmm. us move forward in learning about how to treat any disease, but it's been particularly helpful uh, in COVID. So remdesivir that you were talking about earlier, what, how, how effective has that been in treating people? Yeah, so the, the, the drug um, is an antiviral, means that, which means it blocks the ability of the virus to replicate itself uh, in a person. Um, and the studies from the NIH um, that were done initially uh, revealed that uh, the people that, that took the drug when they had COVID uh, had a shorter time of, uh, to recovery. They also showed a possible uh, improvement in mortality. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we at Providence followed up on that uh, work and within our health system uh, discovered that remdesivir reduces the chance of dying from COVID uh, by about 40% uh, mm -hmm. if it started at the right time, which means when someone's in the hospital on oxygen. Uh, and so we're very happy that we were able to show that uh, work and that's uh, been published in a journal called Clinical Infectious Diseases and that's work that was done here at Providence. Wow, congratulations and thanks for all your work there. So um, one of the questions I had is what have we learned over the last 19 months? And that will probably take two days to kind of go into detail, but what are the big takeaways um, that, you, that you've learned and that you've shared with your colleagues here? Yeah, there's been so many learnings. I would say that, that we've definitely made a big improvement in outcomes when people get COVID right. by these clinical trials with therapeutics. Those are the drugs that we use to treat um, COVID. Uh, these monoclonal antibodies and then these treatments that we use in the hospital are saving lives. Um, but what I, you know, while that's extremely important, you know, of more importance are the vaccines. Uh, because the, the vaccines that we have available prevent people from even getting sick. Uh, and you can avoid having to go to the hospital and get treatment for the disease if you can prevent it to begin with. And right. so, uh, you know, an ounce of prevention goes a long way here. Uh, and the biggest takeaway, I think, for our country is uh, the importance of being vaccinated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, right now we're all in the, in the midst of the Delta variant. What is the Delta variant? How is it different from COVID that was a, out here a year ago? And what are the signs of the Delta variant versus what we had last year? Yeah, the Delta variant. So uh, with COVID, um, any sort of uh, living thing can mutate and change. Um, and part of that is a result of what, we, what is called the natural selection. So um, for example, bacteria, you know, if we treat them with antibiotics, they, they can become resistant uh, to uh, antibiotics. It's how they survive and keep growing. Uh, with viruses, um, uh, they, when they infect people, they can also develop uh, changes in them. And those changes can 
uh, make the virus behave differently. The Delta variant is a, is a type of COVID that has changed. Um, and uh, it is different from the original strain of COVID in that it appears to be much more contagious. The uh, original uh, strain of COVID that we saw back in uh, January of last year uh, could infect on average two, perhaps three people uh, for every person that's infected. Uh, with the Delta variant, uh, it appears that it is much more contagious and one infected person can infect between six and nine people. So mm -hmm. it's dramatically much more contagious than the, the original strain that we saw a year and a half ago. In addition, it appears that it, it's a more virulent uh, virus, meaning that uh, it harms people more than the original virus. Mm -hmm. And a study was just published out of the UK uh, this week uh, that looked at how often people were hospitalized when they were infected with the original strain versus Delta. And it appeared that uh, Delta causes uh, hospitalizations to occur twice as often if infected with, um, with uh, the Delta variant. So it's a, a double whammy in the sense that uh, one, it's much more contagious and more people can get infected. And then secondly, um, it's, it's more virulent. So more people end up in the hospital compared to the original strain. So uh, this is borne out by what's happened across the world. Um, the Delta variant caused a lot of harm in India where it first originated. It rapidly mm -hmm. went to other countries, including the England and now currently in the US. Uh, there are a number of variants that exist with COVID and they're all named after Greek letters. So they're alpha, beta, uh, gamma, delta, lambda, et cetera. Uh, and Delta, because it's so contagious, rapidly took over and is now causing 99% of infections in the US. And mm -hmm. due to its increased contagiousness, as well as uh, likelihood of causing hospitalization, what we're seeing across our country is that uh, huge numbers of patients are being admitted. And we're seeing this primarily occur in areas where the vaccination rates are low. So for example, in the southeastern US uh, are really getting inundated. Uh, we've also seen uh, fairly dramatic rises on the West Coast, although at sort of smaller numbers, but still large numbers of patients becoming admitted to the hospital with this Delta variant infection. So, so you were talking about um, how much more infectious this Delta variant is. How are people getting infected? Is it still through um, talking and shaking hands? What, what, what's infecting? How are, the, how are people infecting other folks with this Delta variant? Yeah, so uh, the way that it's transmitted is in the same way that the original strain is. And so uh, mostly when people breathe or cough or sneeze are the primary ways that are that the, the virus is being transmitted. And the virus tends to stay in the air longer where there's not good ventilation. And that's primarily indoors. And so the, the major risk factor for transmission uh, is someone who has an infection uh, being in the same area, generally indoors as another person. Now, uh, if there are large crowds that are gathered and they're close together, uh, it's certainly possible for outdoor transmission to occur uh, as well. So where there's you know people that are in close proximity in the outdoor setting, that's another way uh, things can be transmitted. Uh, transmission through your hands um, and touching things is, is uh, much less likely, but certainly still possible. So the major transmission is what we saw before. And so the the learnings we had from the first go around about wearing a mask and social distancing uh, still make sense uh, currently as well. Yeah. 
Uh, and you were talking about the different variants, and um, we saw this, you know, first take place in India, then it was coming across to England. And so, how? What's your prediction? And I know we don't. We're learning as we go. But um, you know, across the United States, we're seeing: is it coming to a peak? Do we think it will peak and then go down? Will another variant take over after that? What is your What's your best guess on that? Or do you want to decline? Yeah. Well, right now we we haven't. I don't think seen the peak entirely. Um, okay. At least in the hospital setting, we're seeing uh, more and more people hospitalized with this infection. So um, it's not clear that we've gotten to the peak, at least on the West Coast, quite yet. Um, hopefully that'll happen. Uh, and we really don't know the uh, future. Uh, you know, this for us in Snohomish County in Washington is our fifth surge. Uh, and many of the places around the world and country have ha already had, you know, four surges as well or more. So um, this is, you know, going to be with us um, uh, for the foreseeable future. And really the major thing we can do to change this is, is getting vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Now, some people are getting the, the uh, Delta variant even with the vaccine. And so um, are we finding that those people are usually less impacted by COVID? And, and, and how is that happening? If you've been vaccinated, how are you getting COVID? Yeah, so, um, well, th there's two sort of components that we need to talk about. The first is uh, people that uh, are vaccinated who then have a breakthrough infection and get sick enough to go to the hospital. Uh, generally, those are very small numbers. So if you look at the patients that are in our hospitals uh, within Providence right now, roughly 90 to 95 percent of the people in the hospital uh, are uh, unvaccinated people. So clearly what's driving the, the serious infections in the hospital setting are primarily people that are not vaccinated. Uh, of the remaining small percentage of people that are vaccinated who get a breakthrough infection, uh, what we're seeing very commonly are those people that have uh, immune systems that likely didn't respond very well to the vaccine to begin with. These are people that uh, are immunocompromised for th from things like uh, having a transplant of an organ, uh, having had cancer and chemotherapy, uh, and similar conditions where their immune systems aren't working. Those are the people that are uh, primarily being admitted to the hospital with serious infections. Um, and for, the, for that reason, um, about two weeks ago, uh, the CDC made a recommendation that, that those people that are moderately or severely immunocompromised uh, get a, an additional dose uh, of the vaccine that they received uh, 28 days after the, the second dose. And that's really intended to try to help these people that are immunocompromised um, generate enough response so they can uh, try to prevent them from getting ill if they get exposed and infected. Uh, I should also add that we know that unvaccinated people are the ones that are driving these surges uh, with um, infection. Uh, and the patients that, for example, are immunocompromised out in our community, which is not a small number of people, uh, people that have some sort of moderately or severe immunocompromise comprise roughly 7% of our population uh, mm -hmm. in the U.S. Uh, and uh, it is those people that are most vulnerable to getting breakthrough infections and getting really ill and coming into the hospital. So uh, what we can do to prevent uh, them being exposed is really uh, being vaccinated and also doing the things that we know work like masking and social distancing. Uh, those, uh, those measures, those three things, uh, uh, will help protect those most vulnerable in our community from, from having a breakthrough infection. Is there anything that we can do to boost our own immune systems, you know, in the midst of all of this? 
Yeah, so what we're seeing uh, with the Delta variant uh, is that uh, it is like the, the vaccines that are currently available may not be quite as active against that variant um, as they were against the original variant. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's also likely that uh, over time, uh, our, vac our immune systems wane a little bit um, after, you know, having had the vaccine, you know, six or eight months ago. Uh, and for that reason, the, the CDC is also looking at recommending booster doses for all Americans uh, so that we can boost our immune system against Delta uh, beginning somewhere around September 20th. And so we at Providence are working on setting up the structure to make sure that we get everyone these booster doses that needs to have them once the CDC makes that recommendation. We're already vaccinating people that are immunocompromised currently in our community. Uh, and those are the best things we can do to boost our immune system against this against this infection. Great. So study yesterday that had gone in to get their booster because they've had cancer and they were thinking they, they were eligible. They got to the pharmacy and the pharmacy said, and it wasn't a Providence pharmacy, but said, no, you've got to wait. You're not in, under the guidelines at this point. So when can people that have had cancer or know their immune system is suppressed, when can they start to get the booster? When is that going to be allowed? Yeah, so the so there's a difference between a booster and an additional dose. An additional dose is for people that have a moderate or severe immunocompromise. And if you go to the CDC website, cdc.gov, uh, under COVID vaccine, you can read the criteria that are necessary to be able to get an additional dose. Uh, it seems likely that your friend could be eligible for an additional dose. Um, so I would definitely check the website and, and make sure that that history of cancer uh, complies with the criteria that's in the CDC website. The second part is a booster. Uh, a, a booster dose is, uh, is given when someone has had a response to the vaccine, but then over time, usually months, uh, people need another dose to, uh, to boost their immune response against uh, the vaccine. Uh, we commonly do this for a number of different vaccines, things like tetanus, measles, mumps, uh, where uh, these vaccine series are done on a schedule every six months or a year because we know that immunity wanes over time. And so this is not any different from uh, other types of vaccines where we know that immunity wanes and we need a booster. Okay, all right, a lot to think about. Getting some questions now from the audience um, today. So uh, I think you touched on this a little bit before, but just if, if people are just joining us, is the death rate higher with the Delta variant? I believe you said that, yes, it was. Well, uh, hospitalization is. Okay. So, so we know people are getting sicker. Uh, you know, what's a little, uh, what, make, what makes things a little bit confusing is that in the past uh, 20 months, we've had advancements with our treatment of COVID when people are in the hospital setting. And, and those are likely offsetting um, some of the, the, you know, possibly increased death uh, rate from Delta. So thankfully, right now, uh, you know, while we see people very ill um, in the ICU, on ventilators, um, you know, uh, it seems anecdotally that we're seeing fewer deaths now than we did in the first wave when we had no, you know, approved treatments. Um, so that's a hard question to answer. Okay. What, we, what we can say with some certainty is that, that, it, that it does cause people to go to the hospital more than the original strain. And having to go to the hospital is no fun, right? That means you're on oxygen with a pneumonia. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it, it is definitely a more virulent organism. 
And uh, another question we had from somebody that's um, tuning in, and thank you guys for watching us today. Um, how do you know somebody has the Delta variant? Are the, is everyone that's in the hospital right now someone that has a Delta variant, or does somebody have COVID-19 from, you know, six, eight months ago? So the, the way that uh, this testing is done is done at the, at the state level. And so the state does surveillance. And so roughly 10% of, of patients will have their samples sent to the, the Department of Health to be tested and sequenced to find out what sort of uh, variant they might have. Uh, currently, roughly 99% of patients in the hospital have the Delta variant. So it's extremely likely that if you're in the hospital, you have Delta. Uh, Delta has been so much more contagious that it's virtually taken over um, you know, all the hospital admissions uh, oh, si since essentially July 1st. Um, we saw a very rapid rise in this variant uh, between the second half of June and, and early July. So uh, at this point in time, uh, virtually everybody that gets infected uh, and is in the hospital has Delta. Okay. All right. Um, have another question too. Um, what are your thoughts? And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right. On on the use of ivermectin. Ivermectin. Yeah. So I, ivermectin is an antiparasitic uh, medication. So it's it's generally used to treat parasites. Um, uh, in vitro, uh, meaning uh, when they study this um, drug uh, in petri dishes. Uh, at certain doses, they can see that there appears to be some antiviral activity. Um, however, the doses required to treat a person, you know, with this therapy uh, are believed to be roughly 10 times the standard dose. Mm -hmm. So uh, at this point, uh, we don't believe that it's effective for treatment of COVID. Uh, the, the FDA has recently put out a warning uh, to people to avoid using this drug. And there have been uh, patients that have been getting this drug from veterinarians uh, and using sort of animal grade ivermectin, which are huge doses and can harm people. So they have asked, you know, people not to obtain this for the use of COVID-19. Uh, in addition, uh, the manufacturer of the drug, Merck, uh, has also put out a statement advising uh, that their drug not be used for treatment of COVID-19, meaning the people that actually make the drug are telling you not to use it. Uh, right now, there is not good data to show that it works for COVID-19. Uh, and um, the national guidelines that are currently available for treatment of COVID-19 and the ones that have uh, the most credibility are the CDC and NIH guidelines uh, and the Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines. So if you go to idsociety.org uh, and look for COVID uh, treatment, uh, you can see the review of the data for ivermectin uh, against COVID-19, and it's currently not recommended by any of the major medical societies. Uh, unfortunately, there uh, is a lot of misinformation out there regarding ivermectin uh, mm -hmm. in social media, uh, and there are many people that are pushing the use of this drug despite not having good uh, data to support its use. Uh, and so there are mixed messages that are coming uh, across uh, to people that, that are worried about COVID. Um, and uh, unfortunately, this is resulting in people using a drug that probably doesn't work uh, and uh, could harm people. So uh, our recommendation within Providence is to uh, follow the guidelines that are laid out by the NIH and the Infectious Society of America 
uh, for treatment of COVID-19. Those are the those guidelines are the basis for how we treat patients at Providence, and we have been seeing patients come in who are unvaccinated, uh, who are very ill, uh, and uh, are their, them or their families are re requesting ivermectin. This is not a medication that we will prescribe in the hospital uh, for treatment of COVID-19. Uh, so I would strongly urge people to look to trusted sources of information. In this case, again. NIH and uh, the Infectious Society of America are, would be trusted sources for how you treat COVID-19. Other sites or things on social media will definitely lead you astray here. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, remedies that are being promoted on social media, things like vitamin C, um, hydroxychloroquine, and other things that, that really have no role in the treatment of COVID-19 uh, in August 2021. Yes, yes. Follow the follow the science. Yeah, seems to be working for those that are taking the vaccine, and uh, um, for at least the vast majority of those. Now, there's another question um, about getting COVID multiple times. So, if you had COVID in the you know last summer and then you got the vaccine, what are the odds that you would get COVID again with the Delta variant? So if one has been infected with COVID-19 previously, it does uh, offer some level of protection. And what we're referring to is the original strain. Um, now, when one compares the effectiveness of uh, the vaccines, uh, the, the vaccines that are most commonly used in the US, uh, meaning Moderna and uh, Pfizer, are, are more active, uh, again, at generating immunity to COVID-19 than the original strain. So, for example, um, if you had uh, COVID-19 before in 2020, uh, and uh, you know, and you consider that your vaccination, it's not as good as an mRNA vaccine, Pfizer, Moderna. So, we are recommending, and and part of the national guidelines say that it, even if you've had COVID-19, it's recommended that you get vaccinated even after you've had uh, a natural infection. Great. Um, one of the viewers once has a question, what if, what if I have Graves' disease? Does that pose an additional risk? Graves' disease. Um, so when we look at uh, rheumatologic disorders, and I, I guess I would consider Graves' disease a rheumatologic disorder, uh, they don't appear to be a significant risk factor for um, either having an adverse effect from a vaccine or for a worse outcome if you get infected uh, with uh, currently the Delta variant. Great. Um, question about, about pregnant women. Uh, seems to be a, if a pregnant woman were to get COVID, seems to have a higher, um, there's of course a higher risk and seem to get sicker. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, pregnancy is an important topic. Um, we, we know, as you mentioned that uh, pregnant women are more likely to get a severe infection and die if they get COVID-19. Uh, that is known. And so for that reason, all of the national uh, groups uh, in the, that treat pregnant women uh, are recommending vaccine in pregnancy. It, it appears to be entirely safe. Uh, and, um, and the immunity that uh, is generated by the uh, vaccine also appears to protect the, the infant as well. So uh, it's very important for pregnant women at any stage of gestation to get vaccinated um, uh, against, uh, against COVID-19. Uh, there is so much COVID-19 currently in our country 
that the risk of infection is actually very high uh, in pregnancy currently. Okay. And same thing goes for children and babies. So we're going back to school. Everybody's getting their back to school stuff. I know I've got two little uh, twin granddaughters who are going to school in a couple of weeks here. Of course, they can't be vaccinated at three years old. So what, what do you say for uh, for families with children and babies and uh, masking and all of that? Yeah, we're, we're waiting for the data to come out on uh, children under the age of 12. Uh, children ages 12 to 15 are now eligible to be vaccinated. Uh, and they have the same degree of protection uh, as an adult against being infected. Uh, unfortunately, we do not yet have the vaccine available for children under the age of 12, and they are at risk for infection. What we've seen is increase with Delta, similar to the adults, we've seen increases in the number of ho children hospitalized uh, and some on ventilators. And so this is a serious issue for children as well. And without having the vaccine, uh, what's of paramount importance is, is really masking. Uh, there was a report uh, in the CDC from the CDC that came out a couple of weeks ago that described an outbreak that happened in the school. Uh, there was uh, a teacher that didn't realize that she was infected. She had mild symptoms of disease. I think she had a, a runny nose and was sneezing and, um, and took off her mask when she was doing story time in class. Uh, and uh, she infected uh, 20 of the, the school children in her classroom. Uh, which caused a number of secondary infections outside the classroom from these children going home. I think a total of about 115 people were infected uh, from this one person that that uh, that was infected and didn't wear their mask in class for about 15 minutes. So this is definitely a very contagious uh, virus uh, and can definitely cause infection in kids. And so as families are sending their kids back to school, it's really important uh, that they wear masks. Um, there, there certainly is a lot of political discourse around the use of masks in schools, uh, but clearly based on uh, these findings uh, where we can describe outbreaks that occur rapidly with Delta, it's, it's uh, really important uh, for children in, in the school setting to, to be masked. And hopefully uh, the results from the clinical trials on vaccination in, uh, in children uh, will be available soon and we can begin vaccinating our kids at school. Great, great. I'm going to ask you one more question. We're kind of out of time here, but we're getting a lot of good questions. And for those whose questions we haven't been able to get to, please put them in the chat and we will get back to you after the fact. You can look on our uh, Facebook Live or on LinkedIn and we'll get we'll try to get those questions answered for you. But we have a question from someone that's that's wanting to talk to a colleague. The colleague is not um, is not getting vaccinated and keeps saying they're not sick. They've got a great immune system. How do you talk to a colleague like that, or do you avoid the conversation, or what what should you do um, if someone is uh, you know wanting to have that conversation with you and you're disagreeing with them on on uh, whether you should get the vaccine or not? Yeah, are, are you referring to a, a healthcare worker or? You no, know, it doesn't say a healthcare worker. I believe it's someone that's just um, you know uh, that's listening today. And um, I know I know at Providence we're requiring all our caregivers um, to be vaccinated unless they um, uh, sign the disclosure form. Um, so I know that's not really a big choice for a lot of people in healthcare across the country right now. But um, you know, in many businesses, they're not. It's not mandatory that you would get a vaccine. So what's your advice for that person? Yeah, and the, the person that's refusing the vaccine at this point, you know, may have had hesitancy uh, because. The vaccine wasn't yet FDA approved. Uh, the first thing to know is that the FDA has fully approved Pfizer uh, as, a, as a vaccine. So it's fully FDA approved. It's been found to be safe and effective. 
uh, and Moderna will be coming relatively soon over the next few weeks. Uh, so these vaccines are safe and effective. I, I think there's really, uh, at this point, no doubt about that. Uh, we've studied this uh, topic very carefully at Providence, and we reviewed the incidence of myocarditis, which is heart inflammation, as well as pericarditis, which is inflammation of the heart sac, the, the sac around the heart. And we found that this happens about um, in, um, out of the 2 million vaccinated people that we studied at the time back in May, uh, we only found uh, 57 people that had this condition. Uh, so it was really rare. Um, and uh, the people that got the side effects uh, recovered, generally recovered. Uh, for those people that were admitted, they were only in the hospital one or two days, and they were able to receive, in many cases, a second dose. So, uh, you know, these rare side effects, while they occur, thankfully don't appear to be debilitating. And, and in studying 2 million people within Providence, uh, most importantly, we didn't see any deaths. Uh, there's been uh, misinformation out there about the vaccines causing death. And uh, if that happens, it's exceedingly rare. Um, you know, uh, for example, the side effect of, of heart inflammation uh, occurs roughly in the range of about one per 100,000 people. Uh, just walking outside, your risk of being struck by lightning is about one in 15,000. So uh, it's much less common to get struck by lightning. Um, and so that's the first thing is, is the safety of the vaccine. These, are, these mRNA vaccines are safe. Uh, the, the second component, uh, you know, is often due to misinformation about the vaccine, uh, that, that it doesn't work. Uh, we clearly know that it works. People, we can see this in the hospital. People that are uh, vaccinated aren't coming to the hospital nearly as much as people that are unvaccinated, so they clearly work. So I would say, firstly, uh, this is a far more contagious virus than the, than the original strain. And it's causing hospitalization twice as commonly. So this is this is a big deal. It, it really harms people. Um, and then the last thing I would say is uh, vaccination not only helps protect you, but those around you. As we discussed earlier, we have a lot of vulnerable people in our in our community. Those people that are immunocompromised, who want to get vaccinated, and their immune systems just can't make a good response. Uh, mm -hmm. If you expose those people, you're harming them. Currently, we, talk, we also talked about children. Uh, they can't get the vaccine quite yet, and they're also at risk. And so you're potentially harming them. And so for these reasons, for example, uh, 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 Pope Francis uh, had said that getting vaccinated is an act of love, uh, mm -hmm. which means that you are not only just doing it for yourself, but you're doing it for everyone around you. Uh, and in addition, at least in my archdiocese here in Seattle, uh, our archbishop, uh, is, is not allowing religious exemption for Catholics. And we know Providence is a Catholic organization. So this is just to, to further reiterate the position of Providence in terms of how important this is to protect all of us. Thank you so much, Dr. Diaz. I mean, it's been great to be with you today. Again, if we didn't get to your questions, it's been a really robust conversation today. Put them in the chat. We will get to, back to you. You can see we are so blessed to have such an incredible expert working um, with our leadership and with all of our patients and carrying in a study of over 2 million patients that we've already done over the last year um, with COVID. So I'm really honored to be with you today to, to uh, talk with Dr. Diaz, who is just an amazing um, and caring uh, doctor here at Providence. So um, thanks so much for joining us today and to everyone who is listening and sending in our questions. And if you're looking for medical advice, please visit us on the web at providence.org. And make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram 
Facebook, and LinkedIn. And that's all for today. I'm Lori Kelly and Dr. George Diaz. Thank you guys, and please get your vaccines and stay safe out there. Bye-bye.